Yo, 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 Thought Warriors. Watch and listen to Higher Learning where we dissect the biggest topics in black entertainment, politics, and sports. Twice a week, we react to the most important and timely conversations, often inviting guests to offer unique perspectives. Listen to Higher Learning free only on Spotify. All right, Adam Duritz is here. He's a guy who's been in my life since 1993. But amazingly, um, in my life a lot the last few years, you're my, the kind of crows is my daughter's favorite uh, favorite band. And we on these soccer trips, it's always the playlist that we go to. So I, fe- I, feel, like, <laughs> I feel like you're in the car with us. I told her that you were going to be on today, and she flipped out. It was the most impressed she's ever been with me, ever, my entire life. Really? That's kind of wild. I feel like usually it's my friend's who won't stop playing our music and their kids want to kill them. I'm glad it's the other way around. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, she loves, uh, she loves music. She loves singing and she loves, we talk about the lyrics and the songs and stuff. And I think one thing that's been great for you guys is just the playlist era, right? You've have this whole career of songs and then you can string them together. You can put them in any sort of, you know, order you want, depending on what mood you are. And you guys just have, a shitload of them and they were all great and it's oh, that's good it's, it's gonna endure it feels like i was wondering whether people put us on those playlists at all i'm glad to hear they do yeah yeah um can we go backwards sure so 93 you you your first album becomes i think one of the best first albums of the last 30 years and you go from nobody knows who the fuck you are to a massive overnight success which is funny because the first song that becomes a hit is kind of about you want the success, you're dreaming for it, you yeah. want it to happen. And then it all plays out that way and you were on MTV and all that. You've talked a lot since about, uh, you know, having such a weird relationship with fame and success. As that's happening in the moment, what do you remember about that 28 years later? Well, it was really weird because Mr. Jones, I mean, yeah, it's a song about wanting to be a rock star, but it's also a song about knowing or the guy in the song not realizing that it's not going to be everything he wants it to be, you know, and, and you're supposed to hear through his delusion about when everybody loves me, I'll never be lonely. You know what I mean? So it's got both sides to it, you know, and, and then it happens and it's like, I mean, I had to be impressed with myself. That is some seriously prescient songwriting. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it was also weird because like we had a big fight over the song. The label didn't want it as a single, uh, and I didn't even think it was a particularly great single. We all thought Ranking was the big single, but you'd put out introductory songs back then. They wanted a Murder of One because it had that Jesus Jones drum beat. I wouldn't let them edit anything, so we couldn't use a Murder of One. I suggested Mr. Jones. We agreed to disagree and release nothing. And then we went on tour opening for a bunch of bands that were doing really well. Suede, The Cranberries, Cracker. And we just lied to radio people about what our single was. And it, it almost just seemed like a goof, you know, it didn't seem like it, it's not like it was really going to work, but it did. Like suddenly that song sort of took off. And but even when it was doing really well at radio and we finally released the video, which happened because, as I remember it, MTV called Geffen and said, where's the sing- Where's the video for the Counting Crows single? And Geffen had to say, what is the Counting Crows single again? Because they, and they're like, Mr. Jones, what, what kind of a conversation is this? Yeah. Um, but even when we put that out, we still weren't even in the top 200. I mean, it was when we played Round Here on Saturday Night Live that the the record jumped 40 spots a week for five or six weeks and landed us at number two all of a sudden for a couple years. 
Um, so it was weird. It was like, it, it kind of came out of nowhere, but we'd been on the road for a while. Like, I mean, not, a, I don't know. It seemed like a while for us. It was probably three months, four months when we played Saturday Night Live, six or seven months when the record really blew up and like eight or nine months before we realized it, that something had changed. We could see it on the chart was huge, but the culture didn't really hit us. I remember because we went away to, we went on our first European trip that April of 94 and it was no big deal. We'd played some headline gigs right before we left and we were, you know, mid-range thing. We came back to the States and landed in New Orleans during Jazz Fest. I got mobbed everywhere I went at something I'd been going to for years. And then we played Tipitina's. There's like a thousand people inside the club and 5,000 people outside the club on the street. It was crazy. I mean, all of a sudden we realized, oh, everything's different now. And then we had a big summer tour where it was clear that it went insane. But, we, you know, you, didn't, you don't realize it at first because the, the Beatlemania part of it doesn't hit you right away. I was kind of overwhelmed. So we're talking it's four years before the internet really... Oh, yeah becomes anything right and there was this old school way of discovering music where especially with that album it was my friend jim great he's like you got to get this new kind of crows album it's really good and you had to make this decision in 1993 do i want to spend 15 bucks on this cd or yeah. not do i trust my friend do i trust this one song that i heard on the radio do i trust this one video i saw is this worth 15 dollars and i remember i bought the album and i was going back on a train from uh from boston to connecticut and listen to it. And it was such, it was just such a distinct start to finish album. There's a couple from that era that I feel like, it, like the first Dave Matthews album was like that. First Cranberries album was like that. But nowadays, I think like 20 years later, everything you described, it's almost the opposite. It's like the bizarre version of it, right? It would, it would be on the internet, it would take off right away. You, you would be immediately enjoyed and dissected in five minutes. <laughs> and, and then that would be it. So it was like this organic way to, kind of discover and fall in love with an album that honestly i really miss you know it's i think it happened back then you know like man rem had six albums five or six albums on an independent label before they ever put out a major label album so like they were so they'd spent so long being everybody's indie cool discovery that you know it almost made them teflon for the rest of their career you could there was nowhere there's no reason for anyone to ever say a bad word about them you know what yep. i mean because they had you know we had one album that way but you know, yeah, it was a different era. Like you could never have a career like REM's now. It would be, it would be, it would be bizarre. Really, really surprising to do that. Um, because yeah, well, the internet eventually finds things and just, and then it, it feeds on them in almost the way radio used to. Where like the radio, the bigger you got, the almost more of a death knell it was because they'll play you so much they'll make people hate you. You know what I mean? You'll annoy the shit out of people after two years with a successful record. Like, I'm sure Mr. Jones got on people's nerves after a while, you know, and the internet now, it will eat you up that way if you're not careful. Well, my generation, I graduated from college in 92 and we were just very, very, very um, wary and fearful of, of somebody becoming successful, right? We yeah. wanted people, we wanted to keep them in their little cage over here where we love them. <laughs> REM's a great example, right? REM was like the best college radio band of the eighties. And then they started to actually become really successful and it was complicated for a lot of us. Right. It's like, wait, wait. And I was still like, I'm all in. I like these albums and other people are like, nah, fuck it. They're too mainstream now. And then you'd kind of shift to like the Pixies or, you know, Billy Bragg or whatever. You would just have the people like you would gravitate toward the people that when it happened with Nirvana, 
my buddy House who loved their, you know, the album before the album that blew up. And then when it happened with them and you could see Cobain was like, wait, this, I don't want this. This, this wasn't what I attended. It didn't seem like you totally wanted it either based on the second album. Well, I think, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. I was very worried about it. You know, I've seen this come and go in people's careers as a fan, you know. Uh, it was pretty obvious to me, you know, we were, Mr. Jones was a sort of single. We, we eventually put out the video. <clears throat> I ref refused to do anything but round here for the second single because I, I really wanted to establish who we really were. And I, the plan was always to go with Rain King after that, but we were so big by the time Round, King, Round Here was out that I went to the rec company and I said, I'm done. I won't release any other singles. I won't make any more videos. This album is big enough. I want a career, not one record, and it has to stop. And, I, and they were furious. And like, I was like, I don't care. I, I, this is great. But also I was, you know, I'm a weird guy. I'm very awkward around people at times. It was hard for me having to talk to everyone in the world all of a sudden. To have the whole world come to you was difficult. And I was friends with Kurt. And I saw what happened to him. And he looked to me a lot like me three years later. You know, and he was a very, very sweet guy. I mean, I'm not, we're not best friends or anything. I, I knew him, though. We were label mates. And I really liked him. And then while I was in London, not London, I, I landed in, I remember very distinctly landing in Paris in April of that year, you know, we were supposed to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. We were waiting. I, I had just met David Wilde, the writer, and Mark Seliger, the photographer. And they were actually really good guys. And I finally felt better because I was nervous about being on the cover of Rolling Stone. People won't realize it now, but that rec that magazine was omnipresent. It meant your face was going to be on every street corner in America. And, well, that and and SNL, the combo of that, yeah. you, there was no way to recover from the fame combo of those two things. I mean, I was very nervous about that. And I'm in that hot, that hotel in, in Paris. And there's a, they asked me to come to like the courtesy phone. And when I picked it up, uh, my former A&R guy told me that they, because Kurt had been missing for a few days, they found his body and he, he killed himself. And I'm sitting there in this lobby, having gotten this phone call. Maybe I'm the first person in Europe to find out. Mm. You know, and I look at it, these two guys from Rolling Stone who want to put me on the cover of Rolling Stone. I, I was terrified, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I knew that I wasn't as comfortable with that stuff as a lot of other people would be. And it was awkward and difficult for me. And I, I had a hard time with it. And I really, I was scared. And I, I you know, I, I didn't look, I wanted to be a rock star, but you don't know what that means until it happens. It lands on you. Like, you know, it, it and for me, I struggled. I mean, look, I've said this a million times. If you woke up on Mars, you'd, you'd take a few days to get used to the gravity. You know, it's been 30 years now. I'm used to the gravity. I still am awkward. But, you know, I got a little burnout. I just took the last seven years, not off. We've been playing tours, but I, I didn't want to put out another record because I wasn't ready to do all this, you know? Um, right. But yeah, especially at that time, I really, really struggled. And it, it took me a while. And I, I got out of the Bay Area. I moved to L.A. <clears throat> You know, and, I, and then I felt better. I, I wanted to be creative again. But yeah, but the thing is, I've always written songs about myself and my life and how I feel. So of course, the second album was going to be about a struggle with fame because that's what my life was about right then. It was about, I became a famous rock star and here's what I went through. And these are, they're just as honest as the songs on the first album. They're just maybe a little less relatable, I guess, because I was going through something kind of unique right then. Right. Well, it's, I mean, honestly, one of the great music genres, right? The artists struggling with the fact that they become way more famous than they thought they were going to be. You had Have You Seen Me Lately, 
which there's two versions of it, right? Because you do the second one in the unplugged. Oh yeah, which, we had that. Um, we played storytellers and we made everything acoustic. Yeah. And the unplugged acoustic version is, I, I think, incredible. I, I think it's in the running Beautiful. for best song you've you've ever done in the performance of it, and it's my daughter's favorite. But it's all about not being able to deal with being famous and not knowing who to trust and all that. What's cool about it, though, is the fast version of it, it hits like a totally different way. And, and it's like two different experiences, which I think is a really hard needle to thread. You know, yeah, where it's like two really songs cool. that can mean two different things, basically. Well, you know, the songs have a lot of different shades. At least, you know, when I'm writing, I try to write about, they're not simple. Like even Mr. Jones is about fame and the desire to be a rock star and the dream of it. And it's also about... This isn't going to be what you think it is. It's not going to fix everything in the world. You're just going to be famous, you know, which is great in some ways and not great in other ways. You know, and but all of my songs have those things in them. And the nice thing about acoustic versions is, you know, it's like Beatles songs. Once you've heard something enough, I don't know that you hear it anymore. You just kind of know it, you know, but acoustic versions give you a chance to like open up some of the other facets of the song and introduce people to other things that are going on and explore different kind of emotional parts of those songs, maybe lean a little bit on something else. So if a song has been leaning 70% one way and maybe you can lean it a little the other way, you know, I think those versions on that, uh, storytellers that I think the one of, uh, uh, angels of the silences is really cool. Fantastic. Beautiful. Um, like, uh, with accordions and the mandolins, it's a great, uh, version of that on there. Yeah. We really, I really enjoyed like, that was a lot of work too, man. Cause you have to come up with whole new arrangements for all your songs. And boy, well, you we guys were, really were playing different instruments too, right? You're like fucking yeah. around with people just doing, grabbing a one for one song that they didn't normally play. Yeah. I mean, it was like, we really put a chance that whole summer when we were on tour for, for recovering the satellites, we worked every day at soundcheck and we added acoustic sets to the set in the middle to make ourselves develop all these different versions of the songs to play on storytellers. Cause I wanted it to be like a completely like a whole new album full of these songs. Um, how did you How did you find your guys? What year was it? Um, and how many of them were people you'd known for longer than just you're looking for people to fill out a band? Oh, all of them, really. I mean, uh, we were all we were all in other bands. I met them. I mean, Dave Bryson. After my first band split up, I decided I didn't want to play music anymore. I was kind of like. My first experience, it's hard running a band. You end up fighting with your friends. I realize now it's just part of it. Yeah. But the first time that happens, it was kind of hard. I mean, honestly, it's what separates people who do things for hobbies from people who do things for their life. You know, the hobby is just for fun. And the first time that you run up against something that's not fun, it's a big thing you got to get over. And I had a problem with that at first. And I decided to like earn a bunch of money and go backpacking around Europe and quit playing music and then get on with my life. Oh, so you're so, one of those guys. Yeah, I went to go play. I went to go backpack around Europe, but as soon as you're I like got Ethan Hawke and Reality Bites, <laughs> a little bit, you know. <laughs> but when I landed in Europe, Immer joined uh, Camper Van Beethoven and went on tour opening for uh, Ten Thousand wow. Maniacs, and I was like, "Oh, fuck you, man! <laughs> that sounds awesome." He's playing the Greek theater. I'm like, "Okay, I got to go back home." I was, I was away for a few months, and I was like, "I I can't do this anymore. I got to go play music." But the night before I left, I'd gotten together with some friends, and I, I they introduced me again to Dave Bryson who I'd met when he was doing sound for one of my bands once. And we started doing some stuff together. Um, so I kind of had something to come back to. And all the other guys, they played in other bands that we like opened for or closed for. Uh, I knew Dan and Charlie. They were in this guy, Patrick Winningham's band. 
they later released a Tender Mercies record a few years ago, but that band was really good, kind of country gospel. Um, you know, Bowman, I knew from another band called The Mad Affair. Uh, Charles, did- I would, Matt was in Dave Bryson's old band. And then eventually, like when we got Jim Bogus, I'd known him for years. He played in a band with Immer, and he also played with Cheryl Crow. Uh, yeah, so and Immer and I had been friends from the very beginning. He plays on the first 45 I ever made. We'd always wanted to be in a band together, and we just assumed we'd start one one day. But once I got into Counting Crows, I wasn't leaving. So we had to decide that he was going to join our band. Which we but what's kinda... crazy about it is you had so many songs for the first album. Like you left stuff off that became, in a couple cases, some of people's favorite songs from the band. I don't know. I don't understand how you were that prolific with the first album. Well, I mean, I'd been writing songs for a while, and I think that uh, I'd been in some really good bands, and I tried to bring those songs to those bands. Like "Round Here" isn't even a. It was like it was a Himalayan song. Mm. Uh, the other ones, you know, so the, the ones that didn't end up on the record. I think they're really tuneful. Uh, they're pretty cool melodically. I don't think there were anything we really would have even considered for the first album. Some of the really? demos ones. There's a song called The 40 Years. There was another one called Love and Addiction. You know, we didn't even really consider those songs for the first record. Einstein on the Beach was never even considered. What about Marjorie? Were, Marjorie was. Marjorie we tried to make on the first album and tried to make on the second album. Um, the Marjorie's got a different problem. It's just got a structure problem. It's a really cool verse. It doesn't really have a chorus. It just yeah. kind of had this refrain. It built to in a really cool way. It just Marjorie and uh, Shallow Days. I thought were both really good. They just had some structural problems that we realized when we went to record them. That kind of they just didn't work. So you were thinking about that album, how all the songs, almost like a batting order in baseball. And if you put the wrong, even if it's a good song on its own, you put that song in the batting order and it's kind of screws up the album. Well, yeah. And I think one of the reasons we've never made bad albums is I have a really high bar and I'm really strict about like what goes on a record. Some of those songs, even though they're really great melodies and they're tuneful, they just didn't mean enough to me. You know, it's got to really mean something. And like, yeah. like Einstein on the Beach, which is a great song, a really catchy piece of pop. It was me trying to learn how to write a pop song. And I mm. love it, but it, it, it's more clever than it is meaningful. And I never even considered it for the first record. I have you a know. Marjorie story. I bet, no, you don't get that a lot. Um, remember, this was the, the mid-90s where the era of bootleg CDs where you yeah, could yeah. get, because we didn't have the internet. And there was this place in Boston that used to sell them. And there was a Counting Crows... It was like a, I've, I don't remember if it was one CD or two, but it was some, some concert you played in Europe and Marjorie was on it. And I was like, this song's, I, I, I can't believe they didn't put the song in the album. And also it's like, it's really dark. <laughs> it's yeah, it like is. one of the darkest ones <sighs> you've done. It's like, it's actually like a short story. Um, but the, anyway, somebody broke into my car two years later and they took like my 12 best CDs, including that one. It was gone. There was no wow. record of it. And I was like, oh, so then years later, they had, they had this song, Marjorie. And then all of a sudden the Spotify era, now it's back. You, they released like some massive August and that exact song that used to be on the thing is now you can find it on Spotify. And it was a live performance of it was good, but it was, it must be weird for you that these songs can just come back to life in this well, weird way in the internet era. The, those demos that we made at first got out, the demos that got assigned and they had all those songs on them. You know, the, yeah. they... They got out early on. I think it was called, I think the bootleg was called Flying Demos. So people mm. have had those and they got on the internet pretty early. 
Um, I mean, I've actually gone, <laughs> there were things I was looking for that I had to find on the internet. I had to find on the internet myself. Uh, the, I, I, didn't, I, hadn't, I hadn't heard a version of August and Everything After for years, the song. Yeah. And when I wanted to play at one point, like, I don't know, like maybe two, around the millennium or a few years later, I, I had to find that on the internet, our webmaster. I, one, I, that might be the one where I actually went on Twitter and said, hey, I can't find a copy of the song. Anyone got it? And somebody's like, yeah, yeah, I got it here. <clears throat> Sent me an MP3. Uh, I can't remember if that's the case. Uh, but it was one of those songs I had. There were a couple that I was looking for at one point that I've, I've only found through the internet. So when you're laying out the first album and you go round here in Omaha, back to back, which it's really hard for an album to do this. And it's like rarefied territory where the first two songs set some sort of mood. And this, this album, for some reason, is just like, throw this on on a road trip. I'm on a train. I'm moving in some way. And you put it on and it's like the perfect thing to start. Do you know that as you're picking the songs? Do you, do you think about... Oh yeah. What should be for yeah? Because it seems like you're the type of guy who would obsess. Well, I don't over know this. that it's going to work, but I'm really, really uh, focused when I'm making sequences. Like it's really important to me that a record flow from top to bottom. You know, it's not a surprise when I think about it that I made a record where all the songs are connected like this one because it's always yeah. been really, really important to me to get them. I've left some of my favorite songs off records because as good as they were, they didn't flow right. The record didn't work. I left Chelsea off of Recovering the Satellites. It's one of the best songs I've ever written in my life. Mm. Um, and one of my favorites, and that it was just this, uh, it's me on piano and vocals and a trio of horn players from New Orleans that were really good friends of mine, just sax, trumpet, and uh, trombone. My friend Curtis Watson, who plays the trumpets on uh, Angel of 14th Street, brought two of the guys from his band, the Soul Rebels Brass Band at the time, and the four of us just did that song. It's fucking incredible, but that piece of piano and horn kind of concerto didn't work. I could not find a way to fit it in Recovering the Satellites where it flowed. And eventually I had to leave it off. I just, it was upsetting, but it was, I couldn't do it. I did the same thing with Baby, I'm a Big Star now, the song we put on the end of Rounders. I was going to ask you about that from Rounders. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's because... I it's did. not on not on anywhere, by the way. It's not on Spotify. No, I know. That, that's my fault. And I'll tell you how it happened. I had, you know, I wrote Colorblind, and like the, the day after I wrote Colorblind, those guys came to me and asked me to come see a screening of their movie and showed me Cruel Intentions. And I said, this is the weirdest thing, but I think I wrote the perfect song for that scene last night. I don't even have a demo yet. I'll have to go do it, you know? So right. we, we, here's that, one song. Uh, Escalator with Ryan Felipe. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely going on our record, and I already know it's on a soundtrack and a movie. So like a month later, John Dahl comes and says, I'm directing this movie uh, called Rounders, and I really want you to do a closing theme for it. I was like, oh, my God, John Dahl, he's a genius. Absolutely, you know? So they showed me Rounders. I loved it. And I went and I wrote, and I'm in the middle of recording uh, this Desert Life at this point. Um, but I yeah. write a lot while I'm recording. And I just finished, like, before I did uh, Colorblind, I had just finished Mrs. Potter's Lullaby, which I also wrote in the studio. And... Uh, I wrote Baby, I'm a Big Star now, and we recorded it. And man, it's just such a cool song. I, I mean, I loved it. But I know it's gone on the record. And so I, I told the people from Rounders, you can have this for the movie. Absolutely, I'm going to give it to you. It's written for your movie. It's about your movie. I just, you can't have it for the soundtrack album because I've already got one song on another record. Pretty soon there's going to be nothing on our record that's not like already somewhere else and no one's going to want to buy our record. But then when I went to sequence the record, um. 
I could not get Baby on Big Star now to fit on the record. It just is too Ugh. long. It didn't work. I already had like this eight or nine minute song in Mrs. Potter's Lullaby. All my friends is five minutes. Wish I was a girl. There's like all these long songs. I could not find a way to sequence it and have Baby I'm a Big Star. And it, it did kind of stick out a little bit because it's not about the same stuff as the other songs. And I left it off. But the problem is because I didn't give them that song, there's no soundtrack album. I think there's like a, a score album for the movie, but there's no like soundtrack record, I don't think. Either way, it wouldn't be on it. So, so where's the song? Is it hiding in Bulgaria? How, how it's on the end of the, the internet? It's the only place it is, on the end of the movie. But don't you own the song? Yeah, but I haven't put it out on anything. I love that song. Uh, I mean, Just put it on Spotify. Is, Just give it to them. It's easier said than done. You, really? You've never been on a record company, but what do you think the chances are they've lost it? Oh, interesting. I mean, look, let me put it this way, Bill. I, I, I wanted some stuff from uh, Recovering the Satellites when we were doing... I was looking for this piece of, of one of the songs that I wanted to try and use on... Saturday nights when we did Saturday nights and Sunday mornings and I, I couldn't get people to call me back. And finally they admitted to me that they had lost it because all of recovering the satellites was gone because they never picked it up from the mixing studio. Ugh. they have the, when we, the, when we finally fit, mixed it for the last time, it was too hard because there's too many tracks and you had to use these slave reels where you put two uh, tape decks together to mix something. It's a real pain in the ass. So the guy who mixed it, took everything over to a digital 48 track and just mixed it off that so he could do it on one board. They got the digital 48 tracks back from the thing, but they never picked up the two inches. They just lost them <laughs> when they were done. Like at the very beginning, forget storage. They lost them five minutes after we finished mixing. And uh, the 48 tracks only have the stuff we put on the record. So the other stuff that was never mixed then, like the stuff we were working on, songs we were in the middle of, they're just gone. Then, for years since we did Recovering the Satellites, because we filmed like four different things, uh, the Storyteller Show, Live at the Ten Spot, both of which are on that live album. Josh Taft, who did the Alive video for Pearl Jam, filmed the first concert, which we took the video of uh, Angels of the Silences from. It's a great concert film. And then, uh, what are their names? Valerie Ferris and Jonathan Ferris and Valerie, who did uh, Little Miss Sunshine. They yeah. did like a, a documentary of us while we were making the record. And so I was like, on our 10th anniversary of that thing in 2002, I called the label up. We want to do a deluxe edition of Recovering the Satellites for the 10th anniversary, but we want all this film. We know there's not a lot of extra tracks, but we need all this film stuff. Uh, they, they, they wouldn't get back to me. They just kept putting, oh, we can't find it. It's somewhere. We'll look for it. it, it years go by. 15th anniversary. I do the same thing. Ask for it. Nothing comes back. I don't know if you heard this a few years ago, but it turned out there was a big fire at one point. Uh, Universal's vault. Yeah. And they hadn't told anybody about the fire because they didn't want, they were embarrassed and because they lost all this stuff. Um, so they That's still it. won't tell us what's lost. I don't know what's lost, but I know they had a fire. I have no idea. If, I well, mean, you have I, two choices. You could either just, just cut it out of the end of rounders or just release it. Like just remix it, make it better. Or you do the Taylor Swift and you just redo it. Uh, I've never, I've, it's like so hard for me because I sing everything so differently the day after we get out of the studio. Yeah. That the thought of, re I mean, we should have re-recorded everything years ago, but I'm afraid it wouldn't sound anything like the records at all. Uh, well, I, I in, in a weird way, it makes the song 
it, it gives it an extra oomph because it's just like it's gone. It's just you have to watch the end of rounders. That's the only place you can hear it. I did. I did it like a few like last year sometime. I literally put on the end of the movie because I was just dying to hear the song. Yeah, it's really yeah. good. Going back to those first two albums, who is who's Maria? Because one of the things I like about what you do is we kind of go into your universe with the songs, right? The songs are going in all directions, but you have like a couple characters in the songs. And one of them is Maria, who it, I, I know nothing. I have not Googled this. I didn't research it. But my takeaway from at least the first two albums was like, oh, this was the love of this guy's life and and broke his heart. But was that a real person or is it like a conglomerate of multiple people? No. Who was it? Maria's like the one character on all the early records that isn't actually a real person. Um, it was just like almost like a a stand-in for me in some ways, a stand-in for like all the things that make me want to write about things. It mm. was the one kind of fictional character. I, I mean, I've written in the last few records a, a few more of those. But before that, I really kept everybody's real names in it. Um, I think partially it was I had a crush on Maria McKee before I was friends with her. I mean, mm. the, the funny thing was I was really good friends with her after that. Um, but uh, I, I think that's maybe why I used the name, but it really wasn't about her. Um, but then once I used it on Round Here, I, I would come back to it and other places to, to talk about those same things, you know? Well, it's also, it's a great word to say in a song because it's basically, you get three syllables and five letters. Yeah, it's, you it's could throw it in wherever, way. you could rip it off or you could say it slower. But yeah, I figured it was a composite character or something because I thought it would yeah. have been weird if there was some girl named Maria just <laughs> walking around San Francisco going, he won't stop writing songs about me. He keeps throwing me in. Like, it just would have been a little strange. Well, the the nice thing when I write songs about people is they're generally not terribly critical of them. Right. I mean, like, Anna, Monica Potter, uh, Elizabeth, they're all, those songs may make them sad, but they love those songs. And the songs are very respectful of them. I mean, but I don't write much about why things are someone else's fault. Well, Anna Begins was about, about that was definitely about somebody. Which one? Anna Begins. Oh, yeah. And she's a very good friend of mine. She's still, I still know her really well. She's married with three kids. She lives in Sydney. Uh, she's always, she was an Australian girl that I met on that backpacking trip right before I came back. Oh, by the way, I meant to tell you this when you said it earlier. The song that I started The Real Counting Crows with was uh, Marjorie. Because I wrote that on the plane or I think I wrote that on the plane coming back from Europe on that trip. Keeping it in my head, just humming it. And then getting home and figuring it out on the piano. But I think that's the first, that's the song that was actually kind of the first Counting Crows song. Wow. And I, it's still unbelievable to me. It didn't end up on the first two albums, but it makes sense the way you explain it. I actually doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. It. I have a, a voice memo in my phone right now from sometime last year during the pandemic where I was thinking about how do I fix that song? Does it need a chorus? And I like recorded some ideas I had that might launch out of that pretty well. Instead of just going to that instrumental break, what if it went to, I don't know. And I, so I was actually looking at that last year, um, long before I, it must've been, no, it must've been 2019. Cause it was before I ever wrote anything off the suite. I found myself thinking, how do I fix that song? Cause it's broken. Yeah. But I see, I, I disagree. I think in concert, there's like this long break, right? There's like a four second silence near the end. And it's really effective. I think that's an impossible thing to pull off when you're in a room with like, I don't know, 7,000 people, 15,000 people. 
the song builds to something and it stops. And then the, the crowd's kind of, you can kind of feel the energy of the crowd being like, wait, what's going, is it? And then you go again. I don't know. There's something dramatic about it. I, yeah. I don't know if that song needs a chorus. It's weird though. It worked live. It, it worked live at first, but it didn't, there's a different kind of scrutiny when you put something on a record. You yeah. get swept up in the moment live and you can get away with a lot of shit live that you can't get away with on record. And I, I didn't realize that because I really loved that song. It really was mm. the birth of the band in some ways. And it's a great song. I mean, like the verses are pretty killer. They're really good, you know, but there was just a way. There was something that got exposed when we went to record it. And we did it for two different records. There's a version. I, the only version I have, I'm sure I actually have the original one of those demo things. But like the version for, uh, it's really cool on satellites because it has all this Mellotron flute stuff. Like sounds like Penny Lane flutes. Yep. And it's actually a really cool, the, the thicker distorted guitars against the Mellotrons in those breakdown sections between the verses. They're really, it's really cool, but it just doesn't work somehow. It just, there's something that you get away with live that we weren't getting away with on tape. It just, it, it just kept happening and it needed something. And I, yeah. There was a weird backlash against you with people my age. Um, Heading into the second album, just because you kept dating celebrities. Were you aware of that at the time? You kept dating yeah. the best looking celebrities of our era. And at some point, people like me were like, what the fuck? Fuck this guy. How, how does he keep how does he keep getting these people? What is, what is happening? But he, so were you aware of that? Because this was early internet. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm fucking charming. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really am like just about the nicest guy you'll ever meet when I'm being nice. Other times, right. not so much. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't know what to do about it. I mean, I, I thought it was going to happen, which is why I tried to shut down that first album. I was sure it was going to happen, and I wanted to try and avoid it. Um, yeah, I didn't know what to do about it. I mean, like, I was getting pillared for dating beautiful women, but, like, it seemed like a great idea to me. You know, right. Like, and I was getting in trouble for, like, I wrote an album about struggling with fame, but, I mean, I was struggling with fame. So, But what did you want to be about? a celebrity or you didn't? Because no, on the one it. hand, it seemed like you didn't want to be a celebrity. But on the other hand, you're in relationships with some of the highest profile women of that era. So it's like you kind of at least didn't mind that part. No, not at all. I mean, I mean, why would I? I mean, right. I mean, why other would than you? like what it's actually like to date actresses who are insane people. Yes. Um, you know, uh, that's the only part I minded. But no, it's like I, I was I moved down to L.A. because uh, in my working in my struggling artist town, everyone was furious that I succeeded. I moved to a working artist town where people just wanted to know what kind of work I was doing. And I loved moving to LA. Mm. Uh, I met, I, I mean, I, I, I worked at the Viper Room. I, it wasn't just the girls. I met William Burroughs and I met uh, Alan wow. Ginsberg and I hung out with them and I hung out with Tom Petty and, you know, Gibby Haynes, you know, and, and I got to go to, you know, I love movies. I've been a fucking movie freak my whole life. I absolutely love films. Um, and I got to go to movie premieres. I would often try and sneak past. I would ask them if I could just sneak around the line. I didn't want, I really don't like taking pictures. It makes me intensely uncomfortable in front of cameras. Mm. But I, I, just, I did want to go to movie premieres. That seemed like so much fun. Me and my friends would go, we'd party, we'd meet hot girls. Like, what else would you want to do? It's like, I'm just like, it's a normal all American boy. I just wanted to meet girls. It seemed like a really great idea. And the girls, you know, all of a sudden when your TV and your movie screen turn into windows instead of walls, you know, like that you can walk right through. That's really cool. But like, I, I didn't like taking pictures. I was just, you know, the problem is people don't want you to pick and choose, but in life we pick the things we like and do them. And we try mm. and avoid the things we don't like. If, if they're required 
as part of our responsibilities, we do them. Like everybody as a grown up, you do the things that your responsibility demands that you do. I liked going to movie premieres and seeing movies before they came out. I thought that was really cool. I still think that's really cool. I hate the photo lines. I still can't stand it. I feel so stupid. Um, the well, so the girls, what'd you say? You're going through this whole thing with fame because your album took off in some crazy way. And then at least, I think you're dating at least one of the friend stars as that show is becoming an even bigger phenomenon than your album. Like 40 million people are watching that. So you're, you're watching it through that lens too. And that leads to a lot of, well, I think, what was in the second album. That's weird though, because I, when I met Jen, she came with some, we had some mutual friends and she came to a show. One of the, before we would record records for years, we played Viper Room shows. Uh, and so when I'm, because it was a great place to work on new songs and play them for audiences. And it was where I worked anyways. Um, so my friends brought Jen to the concert and they told me that she had a huge crush on me mm. and they told her that I had a huge crush on her. <laughs> and like anybody with egos, what do you like more than someone who likes you? I mean, right. it's like, wow, I'm so, you know, the fact is I had never even seen friends because I, I had been on the road for a year and a half. Right. You know, the one thing you don't see on tour is primetime. So I had never seen friends. I had no idea. I had to ask Jen to give me a videotape. She gave me a box of videotapes with the first season. I, I had never seen it, um, but she was beautiful and really nice, you know, uh, but I got to tell you, when I met her, I'd never even seen the show. I had, I had no idea who she was. She was just really pretty, really funny, really cool. I mean, it just seemed like, why would I not want to date a girl like that? It just seemed like a great idea. Right. Um, but yeah, and people got really pissed off about that stuff. And for like a good decade after that. <laughs> we were really <laughs> angry in the mid-90s. No, I mean, it was like post-Magic Johnson. There wasn't a lot of premarital sex going on. We just, we had a big stick up our ass in the mid-90s. I didn't read a review of a record or a concert for 10 years that talked at all about the record or the concert they were just wow. about like this guy's fucking her fuck him he's complaining about shit he's whining but he's fucking her fuck him you know right. and i was like what am i gonna do uh, should i why should i adjust my life because everybody else is a fucking idiot you know like i'm gonna live my life and uh, oh it's really having a taking a toll on our career that sucks but i don't know what to do i mean i kind of got over the actress you first moved to Hollywood and everybody wants to date you. It's like, yeah, you're going to do it too. It's like, yeah, I was a single guy. I'd been a shy person my whole life. Uh, all the most beautiful girls in the world arrived at my door. Who well, I? you also, I, I almost feel like you had too many good songs. And now that we've had 28 years to kind of digest them and put them in a playlist or something. Cause I was talking to a couple of people cause I was telling a couple of people I work with that you were coming on and they were just like, God damn, they've had so many good songs. And I think sometimes there's a take for granted thing that happens with musicians, with directors, with actors or whatever. We just kind of get used to it. Cause I thought Mrs. Potter's all about, I think that's the best song you guys ever did. Like start to finish song, lyrically, yeah. um, <laughs> musically. It's longer, obviously you put more into it. But um, by the time that album came out, I just feel like the bar was so high for you guys. And that I, that song, I don't feel like has gotten its just due. Oh, I don't think that, especially that record, which is maybe the band's favorite record in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's the one everybody wants to play in concert. Everybody wants to play Potters. They want to play Wish I Was a Girl. They want to play High Life. And just for whatever reason, within the band, those songs, the band is obsessed with playing. because They're so weird and complicated. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I read a review... I've read a few reviews of this stuff for this record 
And I, for the new record or Mrs. Potter, the new record. Yeah. Yeah. No, for the new record. And I, it's come up in interviews where people have said, well, you've never made a bad record. That's weird after all these years. Or what does it feel like you've written so many songs that are all good and, and I have to admit it for a minute, I thought, wow, it's so weird to me that like nobody thought so at the time, you know, and, and there's a part of me that feels like, yeah, this desert life, totally unappreciated. And because mm. I think we were sort of a joke for a lot of years to people and a bit dismissed. But I said to this the one guy, the one guy the other day, you know, the truth is that bothered me like crazy in between records or when records are getting reviewed. But you go to make a record, you go to make a record. You don't think about any of that stuff. You, you write the songs because you feel some stuff. You, you record them. You make the best records you can. Every single one of our records is perfect to me. They're exactly, whether people like them or not, they're exactly what I wanted them to be. I'm not one of those guys who's going to sit here and have a conversation with you about what, what he wishes would have been better because I don't feel that way about them. I feel like they're perfect gems. And I guess the thing that always occurred to me was this, I'm going to make these things. And I'm going to make them everything I want them to be, and they're going to be perfect. And that means that they're still there for people to discover later. So if people didn't like them at the time or they thought we were a joke at the time, well, you know what? This desert life is still there. You could find it. If you thought, if somebody told you that it was ridiculous that I was whining about while fucking famous chicks and complaining about fame is lame, (laughs) well, recovering the satellites is still there, man. You could just go find it. And and it's going to always be there. And so for me, that kind of was what got me through all that time is like, there's nothing I can do about this. You're going to live your life. I'm not going to live my life to satisfy all these other people. And I'm not going to like change my behavior. God, it's so funny. They said that about me. Cause like, I've never been to the Grammys. I could give a flying fuck about the MTV awards. I went once cause I wanted to see REM play. I've never been to an award show except the Oscars that year. Cause I wanted an Oscar. My parents would have been great on their mantle. Yeah. Um, you know, like, but that stuff doesn't mean shit to me. I, I've never been concerned with that stuff. I don't even care. We played the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm not sure I'd go if we were nominated because at the time it was magic to be at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now I'm not sure if it means anything. After a lifetime in music, I, I realized award shows don't mean shit. My, my friends who are musicians, who love my music, who told me that I affected their music. Boy, when Chris Caraba, who's one of my best friends now, told me that, that he, his career is so much based on like hearing my music, I mean, that means a lot to me because he's a genius. I love that guy, you know, and. But the well, other here, stuff- here, here's something I'd throw at you based on relating to what you're talking about. I think if you look at the bands, the non grunge bands, the non Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana, the non hip hop acts, but you look at the the bands and the artists that came out somewhere in that 91 to 95 range, which I think is the best stretch of music in my lifetime. Um, I wasn't there for the sixties, but you look at hip hop's exploding, rap's exploding. Um, yeah, but we have all these the grunge 80s. rock stuff, huh? You're, you're not with me. The 80s. I'm there well, for everything. I'm just yeah, saying yeah. it's my personal favorite. I'm I, not I saying it, I'm I right. I love it the most, but, um, I would say out of like the cranberries, um, Dave Matthews, 10,000 maniacs, all the, all these other bands that kind of rose to prominence for them. It seems like the County Crows music has endured the most now that we're in 2021. And what's weird is because I was trying to convince Billy Joel to do a documentary a few years ago and he didn't want to do it. But um, I think he's like the on steroids version of what happened with the County Crows where um, I would say the County Crows, even though I know it's County Crows. Um, The Billy Joel from 76 to 80, he's incredibly successful, right? He's selling out NBA arenas by himself. He's got no, you know, he's... He's playing a piano for 20,000 people. He's got 
number one albums year after year after year. It's basically him and Elton John. The only two people like this. And he's taking shit the whole time, which leads to glass houses, right? But now, 25, 30 years later, everybody's like, Billy Joe, I fucking love that guy. He's transcended these generations and none of that stuff matters. But I think it still really bothers him. And well, he, you, you know, hear him I talk was, about it. Like he eventually stopped playing music because he's like, I I feel like uh, I, I have nowhere else to go. I'm as good as I'm ever going to be. I don't want to do this anymore. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain you're right about that, about how it, he feels about it too. I was at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame um, when he got inducted. And also it was the same night that McCartney got inducted and Springsteen um, and the East, Springsteen with the E Street Band. And uh, he was having a really hard time that night, I think. And so was McCartney because it was like either right after or the year anniversary of Linda dying. And he mm. was kind of wrecked. And I also think both of them were very hurt by the way the music business has treated them. Uh, mm. McCartney in like relationship to Lennon, making it in as a solo artist years after Lennon did because Lennon was the cool one and McCartney was somehow in people's minds the sellout or something. And uh, and Billy Joel, for what exactly what you described, what he went through. And I, I was around both of them later that night too, talking to them. And they both had clearly had a hard time there. It was relief in a lot of ways, more than just the joy of it. You know, they were struggling because look, music is like, unlike any other art form, it's our personal cool. We literally wear it on our shirts. You know, we define ourselves by the gang of people we like, mm. the genre we like, we're cool. They're not cool because they listen to that. There's something about music that is more personal to everybody than other art forms are. And, you know, that's, as a result of that, we're always kind of redefining everybody because, you know, when you're discovering a band, it feels so cool to love them and be the one discovering them. When you have to go to work and share them with the douchebag at the water cooler who likes all that other shit music you can't stand, you know, it, suddenly it's like, oh, fuck, man, I don't want to be in a club with this guy. I liked right. my club. Now I'm stuck in a club with you. You know, people are human and they're like that. And it's critics are human. Critics, man, we're all music geeks. You know, like some of us grew up being music geeks, both musicians and critics. Musicians don't grow up to be jocks in the same way that critics do. Sometimes critics grow up to like talk shit, like, like they didn't get to do it in high school and now they want to bully and talk shit. It's, it's something that happens. You know, it's like you can bitch about it all day, but it's just human nature. And why should these groups of humans be different from other groups of humans? You know, well, like you, people, know you know, the career has that you really did something. I think this definitely goes for Billy Joel when as the years pass, different songs you did become more pop, way more popular than they were in the moment. You know, like yeah. with Billy Joel, like Vienna and Summer Highland Falls, I think retroactively became two of everybody's favorite songs that he did, especially Vienna. Those were not like the hits that from the seventies, you know, and then years and years later, as people are discovering his library, those are the ones they gravitated to. I always thought that part of the process is interesting. I'm sure it's happened with your music too. Like my daughter's favorite song of yours is Mrs. Potter's Lullaby. She thinks that's, she couldn't believe that wasn't the biggest hit you've had. And I was like, yeah, it's just the way it played it out. It was, it was Mr. Jones, which I think Mr. Jones, by the way, is now underrated. But um, in the moment, Mr. Jones was going to be the biggest song you ever did. It just was. Yeah. I mean, that stuff, you know, it is like you play concerts. It's, it is Mrs. Potter's that they respond to. It, it is Mrs. Potter's that people have a deep, or Anna Begins, not Mr. Jones. Not that Mr. Mm. Jones doesn't get a big thing, but people have these real emotional attachments to things, but also because they still belong to them, those songs. 
they didn't have to share them with everybody, you know, right. and like they're still, so they're still special. And they have that, like the memory that you share of that moment with that song, whatever touchstone for you that it is, is still very much yours, you know, because that stuff is there. I, there's plenty of music that's that way for me too, you know, I yeah. mean, yeah, it's, it's a weird thing. It's hard to live with people ridiculing things that are most important, more important to you than anything in the world. But look, you can either crumble under that or not. Like, I'm a musician. I wanted to play music. I wanted to write songs. It matters to me. I may have taken a few years away from making records, but it, you know, it's, it's like... Well, I was going to say, at some point, it took seven years off here. Well, not from playing, though. We were touring every year. We toured for a decade straight when we finally took 2019 off. Which, mm. by the way, just bad timing because that's the wrong year to take a vacation. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I mean, it's 2021 now and Elevator Boots is a hit on the radio. And like, I have done more press already for this record than I have done in I don't know how many years. Like, I can't remember which record I did this much press on. It's been a really, really long time, though. Um, so we're not like, you know, the other thing that ends up at this point in your life, if you do last 30 years, which, by the way, you won't, it never happens is that you end up just being a legacy band who plays greatest hits concerts. Well, Which I you gotta, did not gotta, do with this last album. No, we never, we've, we've been annoying. I mean, we've infuriated our fans by not playing greatest hits every concert, by changing the freaking shows every night. We've been operating like an unknown independent band since 1993 in a way that is ludicrous. Well, we that's been the biggest criticism with you, right? That yes. you, change, you change even how you sing the songs in concert. People can't join in when they're singing with you because you're going on you're stringing out a word or a phrase or whatever. And they're like, wait, hey, we're trying to sing with you, buddy. I am you're, interested you're doing in examining your thing. my own navel. I'm interested in my own shit like you would not believe. But like, I am not interested in being the corporate sellout. And we never have been. We've been doing our, look, we made, we made a covers album a few years ago. It's got to be the most stupidly obscure covers album ever made. There's like one song on there that anybody would even know. Maybe two. Mm. If you know the faces, there's two. Otherwise, right. there's one. You know, and it's like, We've always been that way. We were always off doing our own thing because that's what we wanted to do. You know, like you sell 10 million records with T-Bone Burnett. They do not want you to go find Gil Norton because you like the Pixies. They do not care about the Pixies. When you sell, you get a number one record with that. They don't want you finding the guys that did Sparkle Horse because you're obsessed with Sparkle Horse. That's your problem. They want you to fucking make After August and everything after, 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 after. But like, right. you know, we've always done our own thing. And I feel really clean after all these years because of that. Well, so I played elevator boots for my daughter. We were driving to a soccer game and I'm like, Hey, check out this song. It just came out. Didn't say it was counting crows. So she's listening. She's like, this is really good. It sounds like the counting crows. And I'm like, yeah, it does. And so she hears the whole song. And then she was like, so who was it? I was like, it's counting crows. And she's like, what? You told me they weren't making music. She couldn't believe it. And we both thought it sounded like it could have come out. I don't know, 20 years ago. It's, it really did sound like you guys, like a hundred percent. It didn't sound, there was no age. It just sounded like you guys have missed a beat, which I think, as you said, like when you had start ending toward the end of the third decade, your voice, you know, usually voices change, sounds change. It just, you end up being kind of the replica of yourself, but it's not you, but this actually sounded like you. Well, I mean, my voice, you know, I'm older, uh, and it doesn't have the range it used to have, but I think I'm a better singer now than I was at the beginning. Um, mm. But, you know, I, I don't have the full high range I do. Sometimes we have to move songs down a little bit because otherwise we don't play them. But uh, oh, yeah, what, I mean, what, so, like what songs What songs did you have to change? Oh, uh, like uh, Another Horse Dreamer's Blues is too high. Uh, 
I could sing uh, Have You Seen Me Lately in Angels of the Silences, but it's a lot harder to sing them. And I realized we weren't doing them as much, and I really missed playing Angels of the Silences. And it's just that it was, it's so loud that singing it that high would really wreck my voice during concerts. So we just moved it down. Mm. And then we could play it like, we played it almost every show on the last tour. We just, we got into playing Angels of the Silences in a way we hadn't in years because it had been just wiping out my voice during shows playing it. And once we lowered it, like, oh, we can do it. It's easier. It's no problem. Um, so it was kind of just because like I wanted some of these songs, we realized we weren't playing them. It made them a little easier to play. There must be a few more, but I don't, I don't remember which ones they are because I'm not actually playing while we're doing them. So, Can we talk about Miss Potter's Lullaby for one second? Just because yeah. um, I'm interested like the process of creating a song like that. That's a great you have, story. Like, you have lyrics in there like... Um, if dreams are like movies, then memories are films about ghosts, which is just fucking cool. Like, you're just like, yeah, that's kind of true. But you have like these different moments in there. Are you writing one sentence lyrics that you're like, this is something I'm going to put this away for later? Or are you sitting out and writing the whole song at once? Like, how, what's the process? That whole song is written in one night, uh, one evening. It was a long evening. But uh, I had, they took, I had a screening of a movie called. It's Robert Town directed it. It's Billy Crudup and her about uh, Steve, the, the Oregon oh, kid who's the runner. Without Limits. That movie's fucking yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that movie. It's a great movie. It's much better than the other movie about his life. Yeah. It's a really well made movie. I mean, Robert Town directed it and wrote it. Who wrote I love Chinatown. that movie. Yeah, yeah. It's a great movie. And I just had such a crush on the girl in the movie. It really knocked me Monica out. Monica Potter. The, yeah. And we're in the middle of make, we're making. Uh, uh, this desert life, and I'm I'm writing. I wrote half that record while we were in the studio, um, and it was just like so f- fertile while we were recording. I just couldn't stop writing songs. Um, but I I was thinking about this thing I do, like falling in love with fictional things, people on screens who aren't actually those people. It's so bizarre, you know. But it's a really interesting thing, and it's definitely been something that like has been a habit for me. Like I really do get caught up. Once I realize I can meet these people, I get caught up in falling in love with them. Like those are those actual people and they're not, you know? And we were working on the record and the, the piano is in a little, you know, it's in a house up in like, uh, East Hollywood Hills. And, uh, the piano is in a little room that's sealed off from the other things. It's, we built this room. So it's kind of semi soundproof. Enough so that I could work in there when other people were working in other, on other instruments. You know, electric guitars, not going to be bothered by the sound of a piano. So I, I just kind of came up with this groove and I started working on the song and I got like maybe the first verse and a chorus and I loved it. I mean, it was so good, so catchy. And the guys, it's probably like seven o'clock at night and the guys go out to dinner and I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. I, I'm going to be here. And uh, either at the piano or I'm under the piano because I had the habit back then of like, I climb under the piano when I'm, I got to, when I have the tune in my head enough, I'll sit under the piano with the pad and be writing lyrics and singing to myself. And then I'll get back up and play them to make sure they work. So I'm mm. up and down between the piano and under the piano. And then the guys come back and they're back to recording. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to stay in here and I'm working on this. They get done recording. It's one of my best friend's birthdays that night. And there's a birthday party. The whole band's going to go to the party. I'm like, yeah, I'll meet you guys there later. Uh, because like, you feel like you're close at that point. Like you yeah, can... I'm, I'm just still going, and I'm writing verse after verse after verse. I mean, it's got about eight verses in it, grouped in pairs of two, I think, is what this house song works. Right. But I probably wrote about 12 verses and then you know, rearranged them and cut them, whatever, whatever I did to get it. I don't think I wrote them exactly in order. Um, but 
I, I keep working at it. They come back from the party. I never make it to the party. I kept telling them I was on my way. I never make it to the party. They come back one or two in the morning. I'm still there. They all go to bed because it's a house. Half the guys are living in it. I have my own place in LA at that point. So I don't live at the house, but I'm still there until about three in the morning when I finish the song, you know, and it's like, it's really good. I know it's really good. And I, I can tell it. It's just, it's so good. It's eight minutes long, which is a problem because it probably should be a single because it's so catchy. Um, but anyways, we go back, get on with recording the record. I show it to the guys. Everybody loves it. They're flipping out. We can't wait to record it. But at um, this point, it's just, it's just the lyrics, the voice and the piano. You haven't yeah. even put in the other stuff in yet. Yeah. So a few weeks pass because we're working on some other stuff and we finish whatever we're working on. We're getting ready to record Mrs. Potter's Lullaby. It's going to be like, uh, I don't know. It's like a Friday. We're going to do it on Monday night. We're going to start it Monday night and record it. We spend the day Monday getting sounds. I get a phone call from my best friend, my friend Jen. And she tells me that she's a movie producer. And she tells me, she's the girl that got hit by the car. She's, uh, Long December's about her. She, spending uh, okay. all the time in the hospital with her when she was hit by a car. Mm. And she tells me that she's working on a movie and she's been talking about a part for this woman. And this agent wants her to use Monica Potter. They get to talking about it. And she tells her, well, it's really funny. My best friend just wrote this song about her. It's really good. And she's like, you got, you're kidding me. I, you, I got to tell Monica. Can I tell Monica? And the girl, she says, yeah. So they call, the, Monica is so flipped out. She's a huge Counting Crows fan. They want to have dinner that night. And I was like, oh, Wait, so you didn't know she was a Counting Crows fan? You just liked her from the movie? I didn't know anything about her. Yeah, I know a thing Wow, okay. She's from Cleveland. This Good way know. to get to meet her, write an write a eight-minute song about her. I mean, I knew, I was really good friends with Billy Crudup because my other best friend, who I've known since 1980-something, is Mary Louise Parker. We met when yeah. we were in Berkeley when we were kids, who is, you know, a, no, at that point, living with Billy here yeah. in New York. So I, But I've never had a chance to bring it up. It, it, I, wasn't, I don't know if I ever would have brought it up. It's just so weird. It's weird enough that I do that sort of thing. I don't need to, like, inform my friends of it. Um, but so I, I end up, going to dinner with them that night and I, I i take you know it's okay we take a dinner break from in the studio so i go down to this restaurant in hollywood and I'm, it's me and the girl's like i want to have dinner with him but i don't want to go alone and i'm like neither do i you know it's like me and my friend jen her and her agent or manager one of the two whoever that woman was and we all have dinner together and we talk about midway through dinner monica's finally like okay i gotta i gotta just ask what, what's the deal with this song and i said well i mean it's not really a song about you it's a song about me uh, but you're like a part of it because it's about like I, it began from this idea of me you know having crushes on girls in movies and you know i saw it without we talked about it for a little while she goes oh man i can't wait to hear it sometime and i was like well this is going to seem weird but we're actually recording it tonight we've been doing sounds all day are you we're fucking about, kidding me we're about to start recording this song and it's, it's literally it's right near there because i i couldn't go far i was in the middle of working so i just yeah. came down the hill to a the restaurant is basically at the bottom of the hill from where we're recording so i'm like we're in this house up if you guys want to come up, you can. So her and her manager and Jen, they all come up to the house, walk in the door. I'm like, oh, guys, this is actually Monica Potter. Um, and we start playing. We play the first version of the song and I'm taking a break to see how the sounds work. I go in the studio. She's gone. And they're like, where is he? She, she's my producer. Says she ran out the back door. I go back there. She's like happily in tears. She's, you know, she's just gone through a divorce a little while before that. I don't think anybody had actually spoken nicely to her in a little while, you know, so, and this is kind wow. of overwhelming. So she, she listens to it a couple more times. Then she asks if she can come in the piano room where I am instead of being in the control room and be there. So she sits, get her a pair of headphones. She's like sitting on the piano bench next to me when I'm playing the song, the last 
We played it maybe seven or eight times, and it's killer. And we and we stopped for the night. You know, it's really, really good. And I and a, a little while after that, I, I see Monica again a couple of days later. We end up starting starting to date. You know, and I I was gonna say if you didn't at least go on two dates with her after yeah. this, then I that would have been the all time yeah. Bill Buckner through the legs moment. I, yeah, no, I, it's not that. Yeah. Although, man, that was heartbreaking. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Believe me. It's know, tortured me for 35 years. I know. As a kid who also lived in Boston as a kid, it was like, oh. Yeah. So anyways, but moving past that, I don't even want to think about that. That and fucking Kirk Sorry Gibson. about that. I threw you off. It's yeah. okay. Um, so we start dating. And I, uh, she lives like further out in the valley, like past towards Van Nuys. And like I, after work, I'll kind of go out there some nights and hang out with her. And so two weeks pass. And we've spent those two weeks diligently ruining the song. And I mean ruining the song. You can get tunnel vision when you're working on something and you go down the wrong road and something which was amazing. I mean, it was so good that night. And it's all of us playing live. But we've been overdubbing for two weeks now. And the song is the biggest piece of steaming shit you have ever heard in your life. It's fucking terrible. I'm frustrated, angry. I don't know what's happened either. I just, it was so good. And now it's utter shit. I don't know what the problem is. But I go out to Monica's house. She's like, how are you? I'm like, um, I'm just really bummed out. She's like, what's wrong? And I was like, the song, it, it's terrible. She goes, no, the song's great. I'm like, no, it's fucking terrible, Monica. She's not, it's fucking great. I'm like, Monica, I just left the studio. It's fucking terrible. She goes, no, I just heard it. It's fucking great. I'm like, what do you mean? You heard what? She goes, I got a cassette of it. What is it? She hands me this cassette. She goes, I don't know. When I was leaving that night, your, your producer gave it to me. It says, Mrs. Potter's Lullaby, take four. Just TK4. I was like, oh, let, let me hear it. She plays it for me. Fucking awesome. It's so good. And I said, oh. So that so you knew how to fix the song. I said, I, I guess I gotta borrow this cassette. She goes, you gotta bring it back. I'm like, well, I gotta, I will bring it back, but I gotta borrow it. I go into work the next day. I'm like, everybody just nobody stop what you're doing. Come in the control room. Listen. I played it. It's like awesome. They're like, oh, what the fuck is this? And I go, take four. We got, we just gotta like. Be really careful now. We're yeah. going to start just whatever we're working off of, forget that. We're going back to take four. The drums and the keyboards are fine. So it's almost like a writer just being like, I just went sideways. I'm just, I'm dumping the last 20 pages I wrote and I'm starting over from page eight. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of what you, sometimes it's, it's easy in the studio to like lose your focus and get tunnel vision and like not, you can lose the big picture. It's why for years I didn't want to work in recording studios. I only worked in houses because I didn't want to be in one of those places where it felt like we had to be perfect and right. Because that's what we were doing with Mrs. Potter's Lullaby. We were getting it right. And it was dead and mm. lame. It was just limp. But it had been perfect. And all we did was go back and be really, really careful this time about whatever we were doing wrong. Just go back to this. This is really... And, and, it was, and, you know, and that's what you hear. It's just take four. With, you know, there's still some overdubs. But we didn't fuck it up the second time. So how long did you last with Monica? How many dates? Oh, I don't know. We dated for like a, probably a few months, maybe. I don't, I don't know. It was wow. a while ago. What a great we're story still... for her. Plus, you built her confidence back up. Yeah, I mean, we're still friends. I stayed friends with her forever. Um, you know, like we would, for years and years, we would play Cleveland. She would come out with her whole family. They're great. And I, I just, it came up something the other day. And so I sent her a note on on Instagram or something and said, hey, just, how are you? I just saw this thing you did. And so we just talked, to, it was like a, a month ago, maybe. And she seems like she's great. She's happy. She's a great girl. Just a little crazy, but they're all crazy, you know, but she's a great girl. But we you knew that friends. with actresses at that point. Yeah. But I mean, like, they're so cute. 
what are you going to do? Like, That's I what mean, when uh, when I was working with Magic Johnson and Jalen and I would always ask him questions about the '80s, and uh, he we were just like, "What? Are, give us some lessons." And he's like, "Don't date actresses." That was that was like what his first was. <laughs> he's like he's like they're always about what what they're doing, what their what their next thing is, their career. They get they're going for this audition. It's just them, 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 them. And if you're a famous person. You're, you, you know, you're also kind of narcissistic about your career too. And it's just not going to work. You know, it's a, it's, it's very hard to find one. It's a, it's a lot. You've got to deal with a life where you're, it's so different from what I do. Like you're rejected or approved of every day, especially for a woman who has a brief window and then you're too old. Yeah. You know? But like, there's so much rejection, so much judgment for how, how able you are to pretend to be someone else that mm. it can be hard to figure out who you are for I, I, actressing being an actress is a tough, tough life. And, uh, I got a lot well, of sympathy for it. Yeah. Well, it seems like you, and you've talked about it. It seems like you're in a really good place last couple of years. It's, this it yeah. seems like the most, uh, I don't know, gregarious or whatever comfortable you are with this whole thing about being a public figure, just talking about yourself. Well, I, you know, I, I, I've been in a really good relationship. I think I changed a lot over the years and I've been in a really good relationship for like four years now. <laughs> With someone who's really brilliant and a great writer and was mm. a poet when I met her and has recently, in going back to school again, has discovered that she loves acting. <laughs> and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> she's like, she told me one point she wanted to audition. There was a play she wanted to audition for. It was probably going to be all remote because this is just last year this happened because, because of the pandemic. She didn't think it was, she uh, auditioned for Sarah Rules Eurydice and, and got the part of Eurydice. It was the first thing she'd ever auditioned for in her wow. entire life. First thing she'd ever wanted to do as an actor. She got the lead role. Uh, and she is good at it. But I was like, oh, you've got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> I kicked this habit. If you weren't so fucking cool, I would dump you right now. <laughs> like, but she is, you know, and I, I, it's been different. Like, I learned a lot about how to be a grown-up from staying in a relationship for once, you know. Uh, do you think the kind of career you had could happen now in the TikTok era? Yeah, I mean, I don't see why. It, it, because here's the thing. It wasn't TikTok then, but it was other things. There was yeah. always a thing that a lot of pressure, whether, if you wanted to feel it, of people telling you how you should be to be you. What kind of records you should make. What kind of records you should make now that you had a hit record. You know, there has always been that. And it's been hard. But, like, it's always the same thing. You can listen to all that shit or you can be you. You know, people have more power than they think they do in the entertainment business. You can always say no. I mean, they'll yeah. tell you what the consequences are and there will be real consequences, but you can be, you can do your own thing. You know, we had a huge fight at the beginning of our career with Saturday Night Live. They were great to have us on and they made our career. They really did. But we had made an agreement on some things. They changed everything the week we were there doing the show. What, uh, on what songs you were going to play? What songs we were going to play, what order we were going to play them in, whether we were going to edit the songs, uh, all these things that we had all agreed on ahead of time, they changed all of it. Uh, and I would not bend. And uh, I really thought that it was, I knew it was important that the first thing the world heard from us was around here. Mm. And I didn't want to be editing it. And uh, I had agreed to play the show because they agreed to let us play around here. And they made our career because we played around here on that show and our record, which wasn't in the top 25, jumped 40 spots a week. And it, it established us. Mr. Jones was a catchy song, but around here said what we were. And it made our career. Without Saturday Night Live, we would never have a career. And it took me on the day of the show threatening to like, hey, I'm going to leave. Yeah. 
don't, you're not telling me what to do. I'm going to fucking leave because we had an agreement and you're not doing it. And it's kind of punishment. Um, I mean, we owe them everything. We do. We owe them everything. And maybe I was wrong to be a stubborn asshole, but I thought it was important. Now, there are consequences. They, they made our career. They've never had us back and they probably will never have us back. And I totally respect their right to do that because I was a dick and I refused to back down. And I was terrified because who the fuck says no to NBC right. and the really the most influential show for forget the comedy, uh, but the nobody has done more for musicians than that show. Hundred percent, you know, and and uh, like I said, I without a doubt, I think they made our career, but they've decided never to have us on again. And, you know, OK, I've learned you, you can say no. If you think something's important, you do what you think is right. You got to pay the consequences. But, you know. It is possible to stand up for yourself. And just a lot of people, it's scary because it's so hard to get a job playing music and support yourself that when someone threatens you and tells you, whether it's a TV studio or your record company, that they know what you need to do. And if you're not going to do that, well, you may be a failure and it's all your fault. Shit's you're, scary. You're preaching in the choir on this stuff, my friend. But, you know, you, you if can you don't do stick it. up for yourself and some sort of internal compass on what you think is the right thing to do there's a lot of mediocre people that can steer you in the wrong directions and then you can't get it back. Yeah. And I, I know like it was hard for me to hear about how we were a mainstream sellout band. A lot of ways when I knew that we hadn't backed down or bent for anybody, mm. you know, like we had millions of dollars offered to us from the record companies. We went to Geffen for $15,000 advance. Each of us, we took three, not each of us, $3,000 each on our first record because they gave us a higher royalty allowed us to kind of believe in ourselves and they gave us complete creative control. Wow. And I was ruthless about that, but they gave it to us. We traded all the money in the world for that. But, you know, I knew how we'd handled our career. So to read the shit of other people are saying about how we're like some kind of sellout, it's like, Oh, fuck you, man. I, I don't, you don't see me showing up the MTV awards, kissing everybody's ass. And like, I, I want to play you know, music, you know, you know, what's interesting about Saturday Night Live. And I think why it's such an important pop culture document um, it catches the guest host and the musician at this kind of perfect point of their career, right? Like with that, like for instance, um, Olivia Rodrigo was on two weeks ago. She has her new album coming out. She's like for my daughter's generation, the most important person right now. And it gets yeah. her the exact week that's happening. And then 30 years later, you'd be like, oh, that was the Olivia Rodrigo week. So like when you were on Saturday Night Live, they're catching you at that moment, right? Specifically. And sometimes it'll be a band that it was the one time it happened and then they disappeared. You never thought about them again. Other times it's the beginning of something which happened, you know, most famously with Nirvana and Pearl Jam where it was like when they went on those yeah. shows and then when they came back the second time, they were at a different point in their careers, right? They were like these established behemoths. The first time it was like, we're here. Um, which yeah. I think is a really, it's the one of the things that has made that show stand out. Well, and because they're brave about it, too. I got to give them props. Like I said, when they had us on that show, we weren't even in the top 200. I mean, not even. Our, our record hadn't even charted yet. I knew we were 213 because they, they do actually keep those numbers. Yeah. But those numbers don't count. They're not real numbers. We were like a band that didn't exist. And they put us on Saturday Night Live. They had good taste back then. Who I mean, was the that, guest host? It was supposed to be Tom Hanks. But somebody, I, I have to say this, it, it is ludicrous. Somebody in his organization or just him realized that maybe the week they were releasing Philadelphia, Saturday Night Live wasn't the way to promote that movie. 
So at the last right. minute, he dropped out and Sarah Gilbert did it. And she was great. She was really oh, nice wow. to us. She was cool uh, for Roseanne. But it was supposed to be Tom Hanks. But like, I mean, it's, they're, they're absolutely right. It, maybe not Philadelphia. Yeah, that would have been a little, that would have been yeah. a little weird. What, um, what advice would you give to like a young songwriter, young musician, somebody who's in their teens, who's looking at TikTok or wherever and thinking like, I've got to do some dances. And like, how, how does somebody learn how to write a song? Is it just listening to, you know, bands that they, and musicians that they want to emulate? Is there something deeper going on? Do they have to force themselves to write 40 minutes a day? What advice would you give? Listen to all the great music that you love. I mean, study it. But also realize that at some point, it's got to come down to, I mean, when I say study it, I mean, look at how hard people worked. People that are really, really talented. Look how much they demanded of themselves. How, how they didn't take it easy on themselves. They didn't write the easy rhyme. How, how much they made themselves work. But at some point, it always has to be you sitting by yourself in a room, humming a melody that, sounds great to you and writing something about yourself that you really feel, you know, and that could be, it could be about how you just like a beat, you know, James Brown wrote some songs that are just about get up on the good foot. They're some of the best songs ever written because he's really means it. It doesn't have to be a long in-depth, you know, it doesn't have to be like Jackson Brown or me or somebody, you know, it can be just get up on the good foot, which is awesome, you know, but mm. it's got to be something that seems like you just, it sounds great when you hum it. And then like, it feels great when you play it to you, like more than anything else, make something that means something to you. I, I don't know what kind of advice to, advice to give people really. Cause a lot of my advice being who I wanted to be through my career, I caught a lot of shit for it. I'm not sure it pays off to not go to the Grammys, to not go to the MTV awards. I didn't want to It seemed like bullshit to me. I didn't want to go, but there is a certain advantage to going. You know, and being on TV and being playing at being famous, but not if it doesn't feel good to you. You know, mm. I don't know what kind of advice to give people because the stuff I did wasn't always the best idea. I might have hurt my band in a lot of ways, but I do think at the core, the most important thing is do something that means something to you. You know, like fucking do something you love and don't forget what everybody else says. You know, you know, I think I think that's important. Well, I think with writing, the advice is pretty similar, right? Because people ask me, like, how do I become a good writer? And it's like, well, what books are you reading? Oh, yeah, I should do that. You know, like, oh, what's your favorite book? What do you mean? And it's like, how do you become a good writer if you're not reading everything? Like, I have a fucking million books in my house, you know? Yeah, me too. And, and that was, I'm, not, I'm no longer writing. My fingers don't work anymore. But when I did, you know, it was mainly because I was reading everybody I could possibly get my hands on and then trying to figure out what my style was out of all those people. And it would seem to me that being a musician is the same thing, right? You're not oh, yeah. only you're listening to all these different people, but you're taking little pieces of them and bringing them to you. Well, when I first started writing songs, I, I, I thought they were pretty good. And I liked that for the, the moment I wrote my first song, like to me, I was a songwriter. It defined mm. my whole life from that moment on. Like I wasn't that good. But it was who I was. And I had a reason to be me, a reason to be alive, a reason to, you know, something to do. And, uh, but after that, I really wanted to learn more about it too. I, I think I did get like the Rolling Stone record guide and I just go look, flip through it and find five-star records and go listen to them because I wanted to learn about it. I know at one point I went and started at the very beginning and went through every Stones record. 
It seemed important. I did the same thing with Dylan. I already knew it with the Beatles because my parents had those records. But, you know, I went and I read and I read and I listened and I just, you know, I was a Who was the biggest influence? It. Big star, probably, I guess. Mm. I mean, except at the beginning, I was so into the Beatles when I was young. As a songwriter, probably big star and how I wanted to run my career. <laughs> you know, there's a huge failure in their career. Um, but, you know, I idolized Alex Chilton. Uh, and I, I loved Alex. Uh, he was a lot of people guy. from our generation idolized him. Well, because for I mean, me, it was the replacements to the song about her. Yeah, I know. And that's why I said the 80s, because for me, it was the birth of hip hop and all the indie rock in the 80s. That was really like, although if you really ask me, I would tell you that music has never changed. It's always great. It always has been. Sometimes it's harder to find. Like right now, there is more good music right now than there has ever been before. Mm. It, there's never been a time anywhere close to right now because you used to have to have a record contract because it was so expensive to go into a studio. And you really had to have one because it was impossible to distribute records. Printing up CDs and getting a truck to take them to some fucking store in Des Moines. Like, it was impossible. To, I well, ran think about labels. our generation, because I think we're around the same age. But, like, when I started buying CDs, I don't know, 84, 85, there was really only, like, 15 years of music to even draw from, right? And even some of the stuff in the early 70s I wasn't crazy about. And now I look at my daughter's generation where it's basically 50 years of popular music that holds yeah. up. There's Stones albums from the late 60s that are still good now, you know? And there's so many different directions that's gone and I'm envious of that with them. Well, yeah, the best stuff's never going to stop being good. But also like their generation has, since everyone is free to do it in their bedroom now with a yeah. computer and all you have to do to distribute your record is upload it to Bandcamp. Like, right. It means that it's available. It's, it's hard to find. But it's all out there. You want to put the time in, you can find, you can drown in good music. I can, I can never catch up anymore. There's so much backlog of shit I have to listen to that I want to listen to that I'm dying to hear. I, I, I'm a million miles behind. Well, so the album's out. What Elevator Boots, what made you, what, before we go, what drew you to that one? What were you trying to say? How long did it take? You mean making it the single or just writing the song? See, just like that, just as an example. Because that was the first one you released. But what made that one special to you? Well, it's really the one that like, it's also the one that made the suite a suite. Because I wrote, The Tall Grass was the first song I'd written in five, six, I don't know how many years. Um, and I was playing it back for myself the next day and trying to see if it was done. I was messing around with the ending, singing those lines, uh, I don't know why, I don't know why, over this chords. I changed the chords and sang it over some different chords. And I kind of liked that. And I started thinking, well, maybe this is a longer song. Maybe it's like Palisades Park where it has some different movements. And then the music I changed it to, I sang this line, Bobby was a kid from around the town, over that. And I thought, oh no, it's not a longer song. This is a different mm. song. All of a sudden, I thought, what if I wrote a series of songs where the end of one is the beginning of the next? And that got me excited about playing music again. That's the first time it made me really want to make a record, which is why I think two of the songs like Bobby and the Rat Kings and Elevator Boots are very much about my relationship with music, which has probably been the most important thing in my life, both as a kid who grew up and it was his comfort, his joy, his solace, like music I'm obsessed with. And also because at a certain point I began making it myself. And I think that Elevator Boots is about my relationship with it as a guy who plays and Bobby and the Rat Kings is about how I feel about it as a guy who loves music and who has been a fan of bands and for whom other bands are a touchstone and they provide the emotional soundtrack to so much of my life. And I think those two songs really 
the, you know, I, in some ways, maybe this record is about revitalizing my interest in something that has always been the central thing in my life that I was kind of taking a break from for a bit. You know, uh, awesome. Well, I think that's what it gives me hope. Maybe I, maybe I'll end up writing something again. Who knows? If you could make a comeback, maybe 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 it's a, a comeback here. Uh, Adam Dirtz, it was great to spend all this time with you. I really appreciate Thanks, it. And uh, it's been awesome to watch your career unfold over the last almost three decades now. Thanks, Bill. I really appreciate it. Any, anytime. Really. Really.